so this is a, what's the word, Ex, extemporary talk on uh, um, intimacy as a practice or relationship as a practice with a, a particular weight given to patients. And um, I think of patience um, because that quality and its opposite has had such a profound impact on my life. Uh, not last Thursday, but last Tuesday, I talked about um, what happened with the arrest of my parents in, in um, South Africa. For those of you who were there, my parents were arrested in South Africa. In, um, they were active against the uh, apartheid struggle. And anyway, there was a whole story about how they got arrested, and I talked about that last uh, Tuesday. But one of the things that happened um, after um, they got out of jail and um, we left the country is that over a number of years, they became very despairing in the 60s and through the 70s of anything ever really changing. And, um, and they, they stopped all their political work in support of South Africa. I, our house was a, a place where people who um, were being let out of prison could come to. So we had a sort of stream of prisoners coming in. But in terms of my own sense of um, where they were going in their life, that that dropped away and that fell. And it, it was a, it was, um, a place of, of quite deep despair and, um, and emptiness for them from having, from their early student days through, um, for 20 years really, um, being so oriented towards this vision of how to bring about change and going through such difficult circumstances like being in jail and, and then being in hiding to, to um, coming to live in England and giving up all hope. And um, that, um, that, um, that uh, despair was something that um, I, I felt very touched by growing up with them. And I didn't know how to work with it until, of course, I came to the Dharma. In the turning around of South Africa, um, they felt reignited again, and both of them went back in 1990, I think 1993 or 1994 and became part of the movement, the reconstruction movement in South Africa. So in a way, it has a happy ending. But um, one of the things, one of the things that um, really struck me about some of the great leaders like Walter Susulu and Robert Zabukwe and Nelson Mandela, who were, I don't know if you know, because Mandela's the sort of one who's um, but, uh, been most well known in this country, but all three were really great leaders in, in the movement for liberation. 
all three of them, even though they were very different personalities, actually never lost hope. They never lost hope for having that vision of bringing about a free and democratic South Africa where every single person, no matter what your skin, would have the right to vote and the right to all civil and political rights. And when I, when I thought about it afterwards, I thought about how the quality of patience was probably one of the single most important qualities that enabled those leaders to hold that vision and to continue to try to manifest it over time. And I felt very inspired by their dedication to patience and to seeing over and over again how they could build what they felt was true. And, um, and so now I also want to tell you a story about um, probably one of the most difficult struggles that I've been through in the last few years, and some of you have also heard me talk about this process, which is my marriage coming to an end. And there were, there were um, we both did a three-month retreat. I stayed at home and practiced sitting and walking and sitting and walking for three months, and she went to IMS. And when we came back together for the first few months, this, is, um, this was 12 years uh, into our relationship, there was um, this great honeymoon that we had for a few months. There was this deep, just incredible pleasure that we uh, were experiencing with each other. And then it just felt like this um, natural explosion of contradictions that happened uh, just from this exquisite honeymoon period to uh, suddenly everything sort of rising up from the depths of saying, this, this is this isn't working, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And that was the first expression of it, this deep dissatisfaction. And because I feel, I feel so committed to finding that expression that we were talking about in the beginning of that intelligence and sort of trying to find out, well, is this expression is this the expression of intelligence that's happening in my relationship? Is this a movement of calling? Or is this just delusion? And in the question um, and sharing period, we actually talked quite a bit of, well, so how do we find out when something's arising for us in our relationships or within ourselves, whether it is an expression of delusion? Are we just in a place of being irritated with ourselves and each other, which certainly is a, a part of all our relationships? Or is this something that is um, a deeper expression that needs to be honored? And so um, both of us, and I have so much respect um, for my ex-partner now, um, 
for her commitment in matching me and for my commitment in matching her for that investigation. And I knew that I wanted to come to a place where the predominant feeling was love because I know that, and we talked about this, that love is an expression of wisdom and as wisdom is an expression of love. And so that, deci that, that decision, whatever decision we came to, could not have as its expression hatred, bitterness, revenge, um, defendedness, um, blaming, or any of the, those other qualities which are expressions of delusion. And so to tell you the truth, we went through a year of extraordinary pain together. And I, and I say that because um, I, I understand that in each of our relationships, whether they intimate lover relationships or not, we bring to those relationships the parts of ourselves that aren't healed, as well as the parts of ourselves that have been liberated into kindness and patience and generosity and wisdom and mindfulness, that we bring both aspects or all these aspects to our relationships. In fact, I don't know if any of you have read Harville Hendricks, um, who I've read and appreciate a lot, but Harville Hendricks is very clear and he says that the persons that we're attracted to, whether they're friends or whether they're lovers or husbands or wives or partners, are the people who actually trigger the wounds that live inside of us. By wounds, I mean, could you drop that, um, the, the, yeah, those two so that the sun isn't shining in my eyes because I can't see you, both of, the, both, both of them. That one's okay, it's just where the sun's shining. Yeah, that one, great. Yeah, thank you, that's better, I was right in my eyes. Um, so Harville Hendricks says that for whatever, however one um, is mystified by this law, the law is that we're attracted to people who are going to trigger these places inside of us. And it doesn't matter after you've um, ended one relationship, if you see someone else and you say, look, my last lover was five foot two and skinny and blonde, and this, this lover is six foot one and into sports and dark hair and totally different. Um, his theory is that it doesn't matter what the outside appearance is for sure the reason you're attracted to them is because they're going to trigger your deepest wound. So that means in every relationship, that place that we haven't, been, haven't brought attention to yet, that we haven't brought love to yet, gets expressed in the expressions of delusion. The expressions of delusion are the feeling of being a victim in this particular aspect, uh, of feeling disempowered, of feeling hating or angry or fearful or in terror, um, of um, feeling lost, um, of, of uh, 
even more particularly the obsessive patterns of thinking that go on when we hit difficulties. She or he, blah, 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 and we have them over and over and over again. All expressions of what Harvell Hendricks calls a wound, what Buddhists would call delusion. It's there in every relationship until we're enlightened. That's the reality of it. And so when we hit up with each other in these places, the expression of these places is extraordinarily painful. And the deluded response to these expressions is one to say, I'm out of here, forget it. This is all your fault and I don't want to deal with this stuff. The only reason I'm feeling this stuff is because of you and therefore what I have to do is get out. Or probably um, just as common, we don't know exactly why we are, but we're falling in love with someone else. This relationship is too painful, and it's not even that we're saying that to ourselves. It's just that we find we're attracted to someone else, or we get extraordinarily busy at work. Sorry, honey, I don't have any time. You know, I've, I'm so busy at work. All, 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 the, all, all the same expressions. And so, so the, the um, understanding of the eightfold, the eightfold path and the Four Noble Truths is, is, the, is first that invitation to hold, and we talked about this um, a couple of Tuesdays ago, is to hold this deep unsatisfactoriness as not a mistake, but as the imperfection. And we actually began our day with that, in acknowledging that we have delusion living inside of us, and that these are the expressions of delusion, that we have suffering living inside of us, and that these are the expressions of suffering. Acknowledging this deep truth is the beginning to saying then, given this is an expression of suffering and delusion, and I am deeply committed to my practice, what does that mean? It means that we each of us embark on this arduous journey of saying, here I have my shit, basically, staring at me in my face. And here is the invitation to begin to open my heart and to acknowledge that this is what's going on. It is, it is the, um, it is the, um, the, probably the most beautiful invitation and calling we can come to, even though it feels like the very worst. So the, the process, the process is the process that we've been actually practicing here today, and that's why days like today are so valuable, because the process is disengaging from the thoughts 
over and over again and coming back to ourselves with presence. So the storyline in our relationships, whether again it's a, with our bosses or with someone else or with the Sangha or whatever, the storyline is the place where we are held captive in delusion and suffering. That is, that is the prison. And the unlocking of it is the letting go of it because we know the storyline is just an expression of a place where we haven't turned our energy, our presence, and our kindness towards ourselves. That means surrendering the story and coming to be present and loving with our rage, with the places where we feel victimized, with feelings of wanting to hurt, with feelings of fear and terror, with um, um, or <laughs> what a jealousy, envy, all, all those feelings. So it's that, it's that incredible practice of surrendering and coming to be present with ourselves in those feelings. Patience is the capacity to endure through that process until it's purified enough that we can look at the beings involved in the situation and say, I love you. And so Shar and I went through a year of, I can honestly say at times, really hating each other. And at the same time knowing that this hatred actually had nothing to do with each other and had everything to do with the place inside of ourselves that we hadn't brought our attention to. That meant feeling the hatred and being present. Honey, I'm here for you. Moving into the thought, oops, come back, Arena. You know that isn't where healing is. This has nothing to do with Shah. Come back. I'm here for you. The hatred turning slowly to grief. Aha, here you are, grief. I'm here for you. And as we both did this over and over again, what happened is that we came to see the truth of the situation without those energies anymore. So that I can say honestly that all there is inside of my heart now is just the deepest love and appreciation for this being and an acknowledgement that the conditions had changed for our relationship and that we could no longer be married. So the transformation has turned from marriage into friendship. So patience is one of the paramis. And there are, the, um, I can't remember who said it. There's one teacher who said that out of all the qualities of the paramis, and just to say them again for those of you who are new, um, to the practice, um, generosity, ethical living, renunciation, wisdom, truthfulness, patience, loving kindness, endurance or persistence, and equanimity, um, and um, um, concentration. 
that that these that these energies that are that build and support our practice there are actually many teachers who say that patience is one of the most important paramis because it allows us to hold through difficulties in our lives and we don't get sucked under and surrendered into identifying with those difficulties but rather keep that deepest commitment to finding the truth and therefore holding through. So um, actually, <laughs> uh, um, this is a, a, a story that from the Jakarta Tales, um, uh, which is the story of the Jakarta Tales, are stories of the different lifetimes the Buddha lived through as he were as he was perfecting these perfections. And there's a story of the Buddha as a buffalo, and there was this monkey. In living in the jungle with the buffalo and the monkey was uh, really into giving the Buddha as a buffalo a very hard time. The monkey would jump on top of the back of the buffalo and beat the buffalo with a stick or jump on top of the buffalo and um, put um, her or his hands in front of the buffalo's eyes so the buffalo would stumble and um, 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 and basically gave the buffalo a really hard time. And every time that this happened, the buffalo would just be very patient and enduring. And so at one point, a magical sprite or, or deva came down to the buffalo and said, hey, you know, what is the matter with you? This monkey is giving you a really hard time and you are so much stronger than the monkey. Why don't you, why don't you either kick the monkey out of your space or give the monkey a beating. <laughs> and it said that the buffalo said, um, anger, anger never leads to happiness. I actually have a deep appreciation for this monkey because the monkey's torments are teaching me how to be patient through difficulties. The monkey happened to overhear the buffalo saying this and felt extraordinarily deep remorse and came to the buffalo and said, I never knew I had such a good friend. And so the monkey ended up becoming a protector of the buffalo. So, so is the story of um, the enduring qualities of patience that the Buddha practiced. You might think that that story is um, a sort of hard to believe story, but just going back to Mandela and the Dalai Lama and so many prisoners that you probably have read about who have been tortured, I actually, um, um, know well a friend of my parents who had been in prison for a long time and, and um, ta systematically tortured for years. And coming out of the prison and 
saying to us, and I remember sitting at the dinner table and my mom saying, you know, well, how are you doing after he first got out of jail? And he said, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. No anger and revenge because those beings understood that the only way they could hold on to their sanity and that sense of integrity that, will, that would allow them to survive was to become intensely disciplined about not letting their minds go into anger or revenge or into those story obsessive storylines of, I hate them, I'm going to kill them. And in that discipline, just like the buffalo, being able to hold on to their sanity so that when they got out of prison, not only did they have their sanity, but I've read this from some Tibetan monks, they had the most incredible compassion for their torturers. Well, we are in a different kind of prison in our relationships in those places that are wounded and deluded. And we experience other beings as our torturers. The Buddha and these teachings say that we actually do have the capacity to hold through with patience, to keep letting go of the places of suffering and coming back to that, that profound commitment to reconnect to that greater intelligence that has love as an expression. Part, part of that process of purification that happened with Shah and myself actually was sustained by the capacity to forgive. I um, went on a series of trainings earlier on in my life with a really wonderful woman who has since died of cancer called Rikishira Marcuse. And we did um, trainings, anti-racism trainings and anti-Semitism trainings. And um, she did these workshops where she would um, bring together Arabs and Jews and um, um, white people and people of color. And um, part of <laughs> it was really intense. I, I remember so clearly in this workshop on anti-Semitism, we were paired up with each other. So I'm Jewish and I was paired up with this Arab man. Well, I know this is delusion, but I have had some really um, difficult experiences with Arab men when I was in Israel and I have a conditioned aversion to them. I know it's not true and it's part of the healing that needed to happen when I was in this workshop, which is why I went to the workshop. So I'm with the, I'm with the, um, um, I'm with the, um, this Arab man and the exercise was to first just brainstorm all the stereotypes about Jews of just, and so I did it and he did it. And, um, mm -hmm. And then we were to brainstorm all the stereotypes about Arabs. And I could tell for both of us, we were really hating each other. You know, I couldn't believe he was saying these things about Jews. And he couldn't believe that I was, as a Jew, saying all these things about Arabs. 
And it was really, it was really amazing in the workshop to begin to see as we continued to work together that actually each of us was doing the best that we could in those circumstances. It seems like simple words, but actually it's extraordinarily profound to understand that in any moment we're each doing the best that we can. And that in that moment, he was. And that as Shara and I struggled and I felt so deeply the places where I couldn't meet her and the places where she couldn't meet me, I saw how much the blame and the suffering came because I couldn't acknowledge that she was doing the best she could. And that the healing came in, you know, in this year of talking with each other, coming to understand that. I think forgiveness is not a deluded romanticism of, of sort of covering up what's difficult, but just the opposite of acknowledging deeply the imperfection and allowing it that in any given moment, this is the imperfection, that there are times when we cannot stretch, that there are times because of our conditioning where we have to acknowledge our limitations. And when I talk about acknowledging our limitations, I don't mean with that kind of, oh God, I hate you're here, but okay, you know, <laughs> but rather, honey, I acknowledge that this is what's living through me at the moment and that I need to respect it. This is where I can no longer stretch. And actually we do this not only in re our relationships with others, but we do it in relationship with ourselves. That place of saying to ourselves, this is it. This is, I cannot, I cannot do any anymore. It's actually the deepest it's the deepest love. And I, I remember being so profoundly touched by a story that Thich Nhat Hanh told when we were in retreat with him in Plum Village a number of years ago. And he was, he was, um, he was talking, and, and I know that you all know how much he's worked with um, um, the, the, what's going on in Vietnam. And he was, he was talking about this boatload of refugees that had been shuttled from prison camp to prison camp and had no, um, they weren't being, they couldn't find any place to land. And he was struggling desperately to try and get the American consulate to allow them to land. And, um, and he failed. And he knew that that failure meant that these Vietnamese were going to die, that they were going to, uh, they were, they were going to be left in the middle of the ocean and be um, subject to pirates, because there were a tremendous amount of pirates on the seas around Vietnam, Indonesia, Cambodia, and Laos. 
and he said he could feel his mind going into this, this, this deep contraction around what was going on and that he lost all his equanimity and calm. And he said, and I just practice walking meditation, lifting, placing, shifting, lifting, placing, shifting, until I could come back to the deep remembering that in this situation, everyone was doing the best they could. That's so beautiful. Because what that does is that uh, it allows us to remember the humanity of ourselves and each person in the situation. Um, I don't know if any of you get Mandala magazine, but in a few issues back, there was a young reporter who was the son of a friend of the Dalai Lama, and he was uh, talking to the Dalai Lama and saying, well, you know, the situation in, Chi in Tibet is getting worse and worse. There are more and more Chinese flooding into the country, and there's a new wave of persecutions happening against the monks and nuns that are in the, the temples. There had been an ease around the mass arrests that were happening of monks and nuns, and now there's a new surge of arrests. And he said to the Dalai Lama, you must be feeling very pessimistic and miserable about what's going on. And the Dalai Lama said, not at all. I actually feel quite hopeful. And that hopefulness is so beautiful because it sees not only what's difficult in the situation, not only also that capacity to forgive, but also to see what's good and healthy and beautiful. And what the Dalai Lama said is that I have the utmost faith in our capacity as human beings to come to wisdom and love. So um, I wanted then to read the story about that. Alex was doing volunteer work at Boston City Hospital, a large public hospital that regularly received the poorest of the urban poor. He'd made that choice because his mother was a nurse in New York's Harlem Hospital, and she had urged him to choose such an activity. His father, an army surgeon, had been killed in Vietnam. When he read Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, he found himself bored at first, then increasingly taken with the story, and at the end stunned and enthralled for reasons he explained at length one evening. I've been seeing people die these days, lots of people. Kids come in shot, bleeding. There's not enough blood in the world, it seems, to make up for what they've lost. The doctors fight to save them, but the kids, they're smarter. They know they've had it. I got into a talk the other day with one of them. It was by accident. I was assisting while they tried to save him in the emergency ward. He was 13, I think. He called me brother, and he asked me to take his hand. Here he was, this tough gang member, wounded in a shootout over drug turf. And now he was like my nephew. 
trying to hold on to someone. The doctors wanted me out of the way, but he wouldn't let me go, so I tried to calm him. I kept telling him, we see a lot of people hurt bad, real bad, but they pull through. I told him, our staff is the best in the city. They really know their business. I told him he was young and strong, and he'd make it, don't worry. But he wasn't buying a word I spoke. Hey, man, this is for me. That's what he kept telling me. We'd been trying to find his grandmother. She was the only one he wanted us to call. He said she was his family, no one else. I asked if that was really true. Then he really caught me off guard. He asked me, what's family? What does a family mean? I was going to give him some fancy answer out of sociology or psychology, but I suddenly realized he wasn't looking for that. He was talking from deep down inside the bottom of his heart. I found out later that his mother was on cocaine and she had had all these different men fathering her five kids and there were miscarriages and abortions. She was a regular patient at the city. The poor kid, the sweat on his forehead, his voice getting softer, I began to lose my cool. I thought, what a waste of life. I asked myself, what does all this mean? Why does someone like this kid end up dying in a crowded, dirty EW, emergency ward, with old drunks vomiting and pregnant women, pregnant girls his age, screaming more out of fear and ignorance than pain in the early stages of labor? But he was asking questions like that too. He said it to me, I can hear him now, what a waste of my life. I didn't know whether to nod my head or shake my head. I just stood there. His grip on me was getting weaker. I could tell he'd soon be going. They were pouring in blood, but he'd had an artery injured, and they were trying to repair it, but he was going into shock. He was in and out of shock. Then he told me to tell his grandmother he was sorry. He told me he had wished he'd known all his life what he knew right then. I couldn't just keep quiet. I was trying to get him to rest. But when he said that, I was too curious. I had to ask him. I said, what do you know now, man? What? He didn't waste a second. He told me, he said, I know I'm going to die. I know I'll never have another chance. I blew it, man. That's what I know. I know that when you really blow it, you don't get a second chance. I gave his hand a squeeze. He tried to squeeze back, but he was fading. He was really going now. He was looking around the room. I thought it was the look of fear on him, terror, that he was dying, and he knew it, and he was scared out of his mind. But he took me by surprise again. He kept staring at the ceiling and he was moving his eyes and then I realized he was following a fly up there that was going from place to place. 
landing and taking off and landing and taking off. One of those nervous flies that won't settle down, even when it's safe on the ceiling. Then the poor kid spoke again. He actually spoke to that fly. He said, hey, you get out of here. You can do it. I can't. Then he looked at me and he said, that fly is in a lot better shape than I am. I was really moved. I thought he's near death, but he has a sense of humor and he's able to get out of himself and he's giving the fly some advice. I didn't know what to do. Then I had this crazy thought that I try to chase the fly out of the room as a favor for this poor kid who had been watching it and had just warned it to get out of town before it was too late. You know what, I told him. I was going to let go of him for just a minute to go help that fly. And you know what? He heard me. I mean, not just literally, but he heard what I was meaning. So I moved fast. I went and got a newspaper in the waiting room and I got on a chair and I didn't try to kill the fly. I chased it and I got it and I got it to go through the door out. Then I closed the door. Then I came back and I took his hand and I told him what I'd done. But he already knew. He smiled. He didn't say anything, not a word. He was conscious, I could see, but he was slipping some more. The nurse had looked at me as though I was nuts, but she and the doctors were all tied up with saving the kid's life. Meanwhile, he knew they weren't going to succeed, and he'd said about all he had to say. I thought he was trying to say more, I thought he might have said, thanks, man, when I had come back to him. But to tell the truth, I don't think he said anything. He had the smile, almost as if he knew it. A life had been saved, even if it wasn't his. Or maybe in his head it was, it was his. Like Flannery O'Connor said, the life you save may be your own. So let's sit together. May each of us find the patience to endure through the difficulties in our lives and in our relationships so that the truth might blossom and our lives are saved.
thank you for your listening and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.